If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Dalrymple. Was that a comically long pause? Because you're very, very important now. Is that, no, is that it, what's it, happening it in a, our lives now? It was now? An almost not a pause. It was a sort of the pause has been and the pause has gone, I feel. Do you, do you think? I don't know. I, I'm wondering whether there's a time difference or time. No, there isn't because you're answering my questions just fine. It's you messing with my head. Would I ever, Rita? Would I ever <laughs> mess with your head in all the years we have been doing this sort oh, of you thing? You know, one day they're going to take me away in a straitjacket and it will just be pinned to my lapel. Cause of, cause of insanity. William Dalrymple. That's all. You won't be the first, Anita. You won't be the first. <laughs> I know. But all the doctors will just stand around me. Another and they're just going, oh, we'll add her to the ward, shall we? <laughs> we'll have to build a new wing. <laughs> oh, God. She's got a touch. The wards of the... for the people that think they're Jesus, and the ones there's that a... think they're King David. And... Yeah, and then there's the Dalrymplitis ward, which is fast needing a, an adjunct wing. Hey, but you are grand. Aren't you grand now? Aren't you so grand? I don't know what you're referring to. Can I just, Alan. oh, it's so exciting. So if you don't read newspapers or or listen to radios, you won't have heard the news that everybody else is buzzing about, which is William's fantastic book, The Anarchy, is about to become, and I quote from The Times, the answer to Game of Thrones. Tell us more, oh great one. Well, the line they're taking is that it's Game of Thrones meets succession, that it's not media moguls, but the real moguls. Oh, it's even better. Were... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. You're right. You're right. Go on. Go on. But this is just the anarchy going into what we hope will be a big international TV three series spectacular. <laughs> The trouble is that I've I've had I've been here as I'm sure you have with all your books many times before, and these yeah. things are enormously expensive to put on, yes. and uh, we need you know we're not going to step out unless we've got one thousand elephants at least for the Battle of Plassey. Okay, well look, so, so, listen, it's going to have fingers crossed, toes crossed. It will it will make it through the mad world that is film. But who are you going to be? Which is the part you're going to take? I'm not interested in all the rest. I want to know the important stuff. What you going to be? Well, Robin Lane Fox when he sold his Alexander the Great to uh, Oliver Stone. He demanded he be part of the uh, Macedonian phalanx. Yes. So, <laughs> and had that so, written into his contract. And I would love to pretend that I had yes. uh, I had my own war elephant as part of my contract, but uh, somehow I neglected to add that clause. Oh, at the you vital fool. Moment. You fool. How many times it's have I told you? Never late. sign It's any. not too late well, for a war elephant. flex. I'll tell you what. Empire <laughs> listeners, what would you like William Dalrymple to be <laughs> in the upcoming Succession meets 
Game of Thrones. <laughs> which villain? Which portly plunderer? <laughs> <laughs> Filling his pockets with jewels and leaving. Listen, listen. It is very, it's very, very exciting. What was Clive's? What was Clive's famous line? He said, uh, uh, "My lords, I was astonished at my own moderation." <laughs> so he added another. <laughs> Five gold ingots in his frock coat pocket. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I can see it. I can. I can actually see it. Now, listen here, Buster. You may be about to be an international Hollywood superstar cameo role, but <laughs> <laughs> the Gardener, <laughs> Marley Six. <laughs> listen, pay attention now. I need you to focus because we need to put an end to this focus on Twitter. Has never been my strong card. No, you know, I know. You just, just look into the light. Just look into the light. Now, listen here. Who wrote? Waltzing Matilda, once and for all, could you please, please make the Bogolites happy and just clear this up, please? Uh, this is a reference to our Gallipoli podcast, which generates five <laughs> emails every single day for the Plus last Twitter. three months. Plus texts. Because I said that I loved the version of Waltzing Matilda sung by mm. the Pogues. And I remember yes. as a teenager going to hear the Pogues sing Waltzing Matilda at the Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, mm. And they were fantastic. Although poor old Shane McGowan, even at that stage, could barely rise from the from a horizontal position. But I never said that the Pogues wrote it. Nobody cares about your childhood <laughs> reverie. Who bloody wrote Waltzing Matilda? But Would you just-, just for the record, it was written by one Eric Bogle, uh, who right. was a Scots folk musician now living, I think, in Melbourne or Adelaide. And he's obviously the most popular man in Australia because every Australian has yes. rallied to his defence and sent us mm. an email, if not three. Uh, so, And people are annoyed. They are sending clips. They're sending YouTube references. I've been accosted in the street. So. <laughs> by Eric Buchel. <laughs> not, not by Eric. No, by this tribe. Eric has flown back from Melbourne, especially. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's, it's Team Eric, and they just want you to know it wasn't the Pogues. It was Eric Bogle. Do you, can we? Are we all I, happy? Let us publicly now. acknowledge this fact. Not that it was okay. ever denied. I have to say, well, but yes, Eric Bogle wrote Waltzing Matilda, and anyone out there who is an Eric Bogle fan, we love him too. And it's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. song, and he's the greatest songwriter ever yeah. to write a song about Gallipoli. Okay, so from now on, if you're going to tweet and text and ask us about this, we're just going to refer you to this podcast <laughs> where we have this very much cleared up now and we never have to mention it again. Look, one person we do have to mention again because he is back after enormous popular demand. It's our second bonus episode of this week and it is... Am I allowed to say? Yes, you are. Let's <laughs> break the tension. <laughs> it's Ram Guha. Oh, Back goodness. again. Yes. We're thrilled about this. And with his new book, not with yes. Gandhi, which he did a few years ago, but his latest book, Rebels Against the Raj. Rebels Against the Raj. Exactly. West, and there is a subheading, which will explain what the book is about, Western Fighters for India's Freedom. First of all, we just must apologise for, for Ram's sound. There is a, a slight technical issue, which we've sent to the, the great gods of audio to try and sort out, but it might be a little tiny bit hissy still. Ram, welcome back to Empire. It is so brilliant to have you back. So this is about people who were not Indian, but who chose the Indian struggle as their own. And it's actually a really surprising number of people. Uh, first of all, what I really want to know is what motivated you to find out about them and write about them and how pivotal were they actually in the struggle generally, would you say? So this is very much a personal book. It's written uh, uh, totally out of personal motivation. Unlike, say, 
some other books may be written to participate in historical debates and larger arguments. And I wrote this book because, uh, I mean, I'll have to digress into a little bit of autobiography. I was an indifferent student of economics who knew I had to change what I was studying. And while I was in the state of confusion, I read the autobiography of a remarkable Oxford scholar who became an anthropologist of India's tribal people called Veria Relvin. And reading Veria Relvin, uh, who lived in the forests of central India, wrote poetry, translated folklore, married a tribal girl, reading him uh, made me move to history and sociology. I then wrote a book about Elwin, paying my dues to the man who had saved my life. Fabulous book, Savaging the Civilized. Savaging the Civilized, which changed my life. And then in the course of that book, I found that Elwin had one abiding regret, that although he had lived three decades in India, contributed enormously to Indian literary and public life, had known Gandhi, had known Nehru, he had never been to prison in the Indian cause. That was his kind of abiding regret. And I had resolved then, my book on Elwin came out more than 20 years ago. I said, I must write a sequel about those foreigners, men and women, British and American, who actually courted, arrested, went to jail during the freedom struggle. So this book has been a long time in the making. I've been collecting stuff in the archives while working on other projects. But it's a kind of a, it's a homage to Elwin who changed my life that I wrote about his his peer group, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And and you're very specific. This is this isn't just Indophiles. This isn't just people who built bridges. But these are people who actually had to put their convictions up for show by going to jail or or, or standing against authority. Absolutely. So each one of them, uh, William. So there's seven. Five were imprisoned. Two were deported. And then, of course, we're able to come back after many years outside. So in a sense, a deportation is equivalent to, it's worse than, it's banishment. So it's actually somebody's worse than an imprisonment as dissidents in, in Russia and places uh, would, would know. So yes, I did not want to write a broad, diffuse book about including, you know, teachers, schoolmasters, uh, cricket coaches, and all kinds of good people, who, doctors who worked in India. I wanted to talk about real rebels. Yeah. And, and some of these rebels, I mean, the names will be completely unfamiliar. To, to people listening to this podcast, one in India too, I think, as, I, as well as I think, I think that's yeah. that's probably true. Um, but one name actually stands apart because, I mean, particularly if you're a, a feminist historian, as I am, and you, you think about the nascent suffragette movement and the Match Girls struggle, the name Annie Besant will not be unknown to you. But I must say that I thought I knew Annie, <laughs> and then I got to know Annie <laughs> through through your chapter, and I'm not sure I can thank you for it because I have now many more ambivalent feelings that I, than I did before. I, I, I simply worshipped the woman before and now I have some trouble. L let's uh, start off um, though with a thumbnail sketch of Annie Besant, the, the woman that George Bernard Shaw referred to as a woman of swift decisions, <laughs> which I'm not entirely sure is a compliment, yeah. even in this day and age. <laughs> but tell us about Annie Besant. Annie Besant is three quarters Irish, comes to India in 1893, uh, having just embraced theosophy, which is a cult that tries to blend Hinduism and Christianity. And she comes to really give talks in India and stays till the end of her life, 40 years later. Uh, and then, of course, first starts schools for women, starts a university. In 1916, when the Home Rule Movement breaks out in, in, in Ireland, she starts a Home Rule Movement for India yeah. and then becomes an important figure in Indian nationalism. So this is a woman who, who was not automatically marked out for greatness. I mean, just like many other women in her time, she gets married. It's not a great marriage at first, is it? 
No, I mean, she's deeply unhappy. She tries to write fiction, which goes nowhere. She has a child. I don't think they have much of a relationship. But fortunately, she's able to escape it, which is not always the case with women in bad marriages. They know indeed now. And then she becomes an activist, joins the socialist and suffragette movement. And I think that really gives a meaning. But she, uh, you mentioned George Bernard Shaw, a woman of swift decisions. She moves from cause to cause to cause. Yeah, I mean, she's a woman looking for meaning. That that much is true. And sometimes she finds them in sort of slightly barking mad places. Well, we'll come to that in, in a moment. A great influence in her life is Charles Bradlaugh, who is a secular um, thinker. And obviously, Annie, Annie's marked out as different because she wants to understand. She wants to lift the bonnet of the world and find out how things work. And it's quite unusual to sort of seek those truths, those universal truths in secularism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she attaches herself to Bradlaugh. Bradlaugh, by the way, is elected an MP for, I think, three or four times and can never take his seat because he refuses to swear an oath on God. Right. And then she moves to socialism, becomes active in the feminist movement, in the Fabian society. And uh, she's clearly a brilliant speaker. I mean, I, I, she's, I, I mean I, I, again, I quote someone in the book who says, you never wanted to be on stage after she's spoken. Yeah. She goes from being a secularist, though, to, as I said, looking in slightly bonkers places, you know, the theosophists. Now, Madame Blavatsky is an enormous influence of hers. Why? And what are they, first of all, the theosophists? And and what is it that attracts somebody who loved secularism one day to something which is almost sort of occultish to some? So I think the theosophists, as I said, they're a syncretic cult trying to mix Christianity and Hinduism. And they... Madame Blavatsky herself claimed that she was in communion with Himalayan masters, you know, sages living in the hills. And it's hard to believe, but uh, how, how widespread theosophy became. I mean, this is a time of increasing travel by sea. You know, the American transcendentalists like Emerson and Thoreau are discovering Hindu philosophy. Max Muller in, uh, in Oxford is translating Hindu texts. So there's a great interest in this is also the period of sort of Edwardian spiritualism and, and, and right. all that sort of work. Exactly, sciences and all that. Absolutely, absolutely. So it, it catches that mood. And um, she just flips. I think the thing about Mrs. Besant, as she was known, is that the rapidity with which she embraces a cause is only exceeded by the speed by which she abandons it for, for, <laughs> for, for something else. Right. So that's what happens. And she comes to India because India is the home of theosophy. That's where true learning and spirituality is. And Boyd is, I mean, she, she's mind, body, spirit, I mean, completely in. She's in it <laughs> to win it yeah. uh, when, when she comes I mean, to, to India. Subsequently, I mean, people have been quite critical about Madame Blavatsky, have called her a complete fraud with sort of fake yeah. table tapping and, and so on. But at the time, this isn't known. It's true of many people around the world. I mean, you, I was, uh, you'll find um, towns in upstate New York and Syracuse and so on, whose libraries are full of theosophical literature. You know, I think the late 19th, early 20th century was the time in which theosophy, it's kind of like some of the gurus today, you know, like um, that Chinese uh, cult, Falun Gong, yeah. you know, or the Munis, you know. It was, it was something that was usually, usually popular at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But in India, she, she starts involving herself in, in education, as you say. She starts colleges, uh, Hindi Central College. She, now this is, so I start having problems now, thanks to you, because she has a really <laughs> odd attitude to educating Indian girls. So someone who's known here in this country for fighting for women's rights doesn't really feel that girls need to be educated all that much in India. 
No, they need to be educated to be better housewives. Well, right. Okay. To have conversations with their husband on the dinner table when he comes back from work, but not to be independent agents in their own right. Yeah. I mean, I, fi- I find that so utterly baffling and hurtful considering, you know, what an icon she has been to the, to the women's movement. How does she get involved, though, in the freedom struggle and with Gandhi personally? Because that is the link that's really important. So, uh, as I said, I mean, she's three quarters Irish. And when the home rule movement breaks out in, in Ireland, in, just after the First World War starts, and uh, the Congress party is also gathering strength. I mean, Tilak, who's a great leader from Pune, wants to start a home rule movement. And Annie Besson starts her own home rule movement. And she thinks, she sees herself in the vanguard of the Indian freedom struggle as a kind of mother of the movement, inspiring young men, uh, fighting for home rule. So not for full independence, still with a kind of British overlordship. So she is very well connected to the colonial establishment, the governors and the viceroys, you know, she has them to tea and so on. But she does want uh, a great degree of self-rule for Indians on the Irish model. And it's inspired by her own Irish blood, which is awakened at the age of, at the age of 60. So she becomes radical again at the age of 60. So the first time she actually almost face-to-faces with, with Gandhi. It's not a great success. In 1915, she's introducing him. He's speaking yeah. before a crowd and he manages to annoy all of her patrons to the point where she's screaming at him by the end of it. It's not yes, great. Yes. Yeah, it, 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 it's a university she helped found in Banaras. So it's the inaugural ceremony of this university. And there are many talks. The first talk is by the Viceroy, who behaves like a proper chief guest. He comes for five minutes and then flies off and leaves the you know, lesser men to do the other kind of talking. And then Gandhi speaks and he's and they all these bejeweled Maharajas who have funded the university. And Gandhi tells them, take off your jewels, work for the poor, live like an ordinary Indian. What is this ridiculous exhibitionism going on? And why are you speaking in English? Speak in an Indian language. And Mrs. Messon says, shut up, quiet, quiet, shut up, shut up, shut up. Yeah. And then finally <laughs> she forces him off the stage. He says, that's enough, you go. I know. I mean, it's it's not it's not a great start to a beautiful relationship, but it does become a beautiful relationship because they both find something in each other. She really yeah. she picks him out for greatness quite early on, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. At the same time, there is an element of rivalry, and I think she feels overshadowed by this young man. Uh, and many of her later on in 1919-20, when the freedom struggle is gathering pace, many of her followers abandon her for Gandhi. You know, it's like people in the Conservative Party abandoning Boris Johnson for people more likely to achieve power. I mean, that often happens, you know, political opportunism, you pick the coming leader. And so it's it's a, it's a complicated relationship. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what, what ends her up in prison? Because she becomes involved in, in the propaganda side of fighting the British line, saying that actually home rule is very important for India. What lands her up in clink? Well, it's because of her radicalism. You know, it's because of her, the newspaper she starts. She starts a newspaper called New India, which runs very militant editorials of the kind she would write in a suffragette phase in India, in England in the 1880s. And um, there's a very, it's the war is on. So the British are worried about disaffection during the First World War. There's a very harsh press act. And uh, finally, they decide, uh, they first think of deporting her to England. That they think that would be too risky because the old woman sending her by, uh, by ship and so on. So they send her on inter- to internal exile to the Hill Station of Uti, uh, where she is for about six months. And uh, then there's a liberal sec- secretary of state appointed, Edwin Montagu, uh, who is one of the few decent men in the apparatus of the Raj. And he orders a release. And then she comes out to this kind of 
triumphant welcome. And there's a lovely photograph in my book, which I sourced actually from the Theosophical Society of this little lady on a, on a table speaking and, you know, a crowd of men looking on adoringly at her. It doesn't, it doesn't, the end is sort of a whimper rather than a bang, though, for poor old Annie. The relationship with Gandhi disintegrates. Just uh, yeah. finally, let's, let's talk about that. So, yes, essentially it disintegrates because Gandhi overshadows her. You know, in 1916-17, when Gandhi was obscure, Ali Besant is the face of the Home Rule movement. By the 1920s, Gandhi is the acknowledged leader of the Indian freedom struggle. He's younger, he's Indian, he speaks Indian languages. He's able to motivate young men uh, and uh, particularly people, you know, of lower class backgrounds in a way she isn't. Uh, and she feels eclipsed. I mean, she certainly feels eclipsed. She then feels doubly eclipsed because she adopts a beautiful Indian boy called Jiddu Krishnamurti and says, You're this, you'll be the next world teacher. And he walks out on her too. So she's sort of alone. I mean, there's this very painful thing that's in your book where, you know, they, they try and meet and neither will travel to go and meet the other person. And so they're just, there she is, poor old Annie on her own. Now we're handing the baton on because we, the next rebel, um, William, you've chosen. Ram, tell us about Madeleine Slade, again, a, a, a most unlikely rebel from a very establishment background, childhood spent riding around on horses and uh, home counties and playing the piano. Yeah, so she's uh, from a... Actually, almost two generations after Annie. So she's born in 1892. And as you say, she's well-born. Her father's an admiral. She rides horses, plays the piano as a country home. Tries to become a concert pianist in Britain after the First World War. Fails, probably because she's not good enough. But probably also because she likes Beethoven and Beethoven, German, German composers are unfashionable. It's not a good moment to be a Beethoven fan after the First World War. Yeah. And then, because she admires Beethoven... She goes to meet the French writer Romain Rolla, who's a great authority on Beethoven. And she asks him, uh, and while she's there, Rolla says, I'm working on a book on Gandhi. And she says, Gandhi who? She had not heard of Gandhi. Uh, but then when the book comes out, because it's written by a French, a person she admires, Romain Rolla, she reads the book on Gandhi, abandons Beethoven for Gandhi, and writes to him and says, I want to come and work with you and live with you. And Gandhi says, fine, but you first spent a year in England, preparing yourself for this abrupt and dramatic transition. Learn to eat with your hands, eat vegetarian food, spin uh, your, your own cloth, uh, become celibate and so on and so forth. And after a year, if you're ready, come out. And she does this kind of penance for a year. She practices for a year and then goes out and uh, joins Gandhi in 1926 and becomes part of his inner circle. And and. Paint us a picture of what Gandhi's up to in 1926. Where is he and, and what's the state of the freedom struggle? So he has just come out of two years in prison and he's biding his time. He's writing his autobiography. Uh, he's very much marooned in his ashram in Ahmedabad, where Madeleine Slade very quickly learns to say or serve him, to peel his oranges, to lay out his spinning wheel, to monitor his bowel movements, which Gandhi was kind of obsessed with. <laughs> Rather more of a penance than doing the spinning, presumably. <laughs> that, 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 that's right. And she's there. And then when uh, the political temperature picks up and uh, the, the salt march happens, she goes to jail. Then she comes out of jail. And then Gandhi sends her, sends her to England and North America to do propaganda for his cause. And by this time, she's changed her name and her identity. She's changed her name. She's called Mira instead of Madeline. She sees herself as Indian, as, as part of Gandhi's inner circle. She has Indian friends. And, but because she's British and well-connected, 
she sees as a useful asset in taking the message of the Indian freedom struggle abroad. So she comes to London, meets Winston Churchill, fails to persuade him that Indians uh, deserve any rights, goes to uh, America, where she has greater success with Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, who again is a, a kind of feminist icon. Does she wear the whole Indian sari? Because, you know, the photos I've seen of her, this tall, willowy, pale creature in a white homespun. Does she meet Eleanor Roosevelt in the sari? Yes, does she? Yes, she does, she does. So she is not able to wear a sari, which is slightly complicated. So she wears a dress called a ghagra, which is worn in, in Gujarat and sometimes in Punjab, a kind of a long flowing robe-like dress made of khadi. So yeah, absolutely, she goes, she goes to New York and Washington in that dress. And there's a long profile of her uh, in, the, in the New York Times because of how strange and exotic she is. And how do her family, how does the Admiral and, and, and his family react to, to the... I'm guessing not well. <laughs> not well, and they, have really, they, they really have no connection at all, you know. Uh, absolutely at all. And then because she stays on uh, for a very long time afterwards. What happens to her after, after Gandhi? Do we know? So again, there's a kind of very interesting romantic story because um, she, in, in Gandhi's ashram, she fa- falls in love with a handsome bearded man from the Punjab who had been a revolutionary, had been in jail, in jail had embraced non-violence and come to work with Gandhi. And Meera falls in love with this guy, desperately in love. And I quote the love letter and it's really quite sad and moving. And he has no interest in her. You know, he's completely, resolutely indifferent to her charms. And then she does what many Indians do when they disconsolate. She goes to the Himalaya. She leaves Gandhi and goes to the Himalaya, sets up an ashram there and becomes an early environmentalist and does very important work on saving hill forests and so on and so forth. So it's quite, quite, again, you know, like Ali Besant, so many shifts and, and transitions in, in one life. But again, like Ali Besant, uh, a sad ending. The, the Indo-China war breaks out. What happens to her then? So she then is unhappy about the direction India is taking after Gandhi's death. The obsession with growing rich, industrialization, she feels that the betrayal of Gandhi's kind of uh, legacy, Gandhi's emphasis on village renewal. And in 1959, Beethoven comes back to her and she moves back to Europe and takes a home near the Vienna woods where she listens to Beethoven. She still writes about Gandhi. And while she's there, Richard Attenborough comes to see her. He hears of her and he interviews her several times in the late 60s and actually thanks her in the film for having inspired her. And in the film, she's rather she's portrayed by this rather glamorous young woman. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Emma Thompson. And she says, she sees the early Russian film and she says that I was never so good looking as the person. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and, uh, she produces one final work on, on Beethoven, which is yeah. almost unpublishable. Although it has a foreword by Yehudi Menuhin, written out of compassion, she can't get it published anywhere in the West. She tries the OUP and then finally it's published by a, a Gandhian publishing house in South India out of kind of respect for her. Yeah. It's a lovely story. It is a lovely story. It's, I, a, it's, such, it's so hard to choose this book between I know, the different I know. It, it, it is, honestly, it's a, it's a box of delight. I mean, uh, in part one, you heard um, Professor Ramachandra Gua breaking my heart over Annie Besant. Hopefully in part two, he'll be putting it back together with another of my favourite characters from his book, Rebels Against the Raj. Well, I'm going to be talking about B.G. Horniman. What about you? I'm going to talk about Stokes, Satyananan Stokes, who um, has, is an extraordinary figure and, and a rather wonderful and inspiring, but unlike that, is American. Yeah, well, jo- join us after this break.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Dalrymple. Okay, so, um, I mean, Ram, I don't know how I feel about sort of, you know, Annie Besant now, but I do know that you've reinforced my love for another character in your book. Thank God. I mean, honestly, when your heroes tumble. Uh, B.G. Horniman, who is the journalist's journalist. So um, my research crossed a little bit with yours because of Jalia Malabarg, and I, I've written about that. But let's go right back to who is B.G. Horniman, where was he born, and was he destined for this trajectory? He, uh, he was certainly not destined for this trajectory. He was born, I think, in the early 1880s in Portsmouth in a naval family and uh, became a journalist in a, in a local newspaper. And when the job was advertised in the Statesman of Calcutta, like a young Englishman seeking adventure, he went there. And um, in 1913, by which time he'd been in India eight or nine years, he was headhunted for the job of editor at a new nationalist newspaper published out of Bombay called the Bombay Chronicle, uh, which obviously was the founder editor and moving spirit for its early years. And uh, so, although it is said that when he was in Calcutta, uh, he abandoned a sahib's lifestyle. He liked wearing a loincloth. He liked eating Indian food. He wasn't happy going to the races. Some of the signs of his turning native were visible in his ears with the statesman in Calcutta. But it's only with the Bombay Chronicle in Bombay that he becomes the great crusading fighter for Indian freedom that we know him as. Right. So, I mean, you know, his adopting of Indian culture and Indian dress and Indian ways and, you know, peculiarly, as some of the Raj may have called it, going native sets him apart. But there are other things that also set him apart. I mean, he, he you say in the book, is gay. And yeah. that is not a thing that you can be in, you know, 1913 in, in, in anywhere in the world very easily. Absolutely. You certainly can't be gay anywhere in the world. 
Uh, you can't be an Indian who's gay. It's even more difficult if you're an Englishman in India and who's gay. Yeah, because of the enormous prejudice and hostility towards homosexuality on in uh, you know in that kind of uh, British culture of the time. So he's gay. He's also a great proponent of the working class. So he's an editor who has his meetings in textiles mills. You know, so he's not just writing for the establishment or the English-speaking English middle class. You know, he's taking up the causes of workers and peasants. He's fighting for the freedom of the press. He starts the first union for journalists uh, in India. So he's radical in many ways. You know, politically, sexually, uh, uh, socially. Yeah, I mean, he is basically um, every conservative person's nightmare wrapped in skin yeah. at that time. Yeah. Um, so, look, the war happens and then there are some very strict rules which are brought in by the British Defence of India Act, which mean that the press is no longer free, that you cannot yeah. write what you want. Everything can be sedition and there is very little legal recourse. And he resists this and resists this, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And he's often in court fighting cases uh, on behalf of the freedom of the press. And um, then, of course, in 1919, Jallianwala happens and uh, the massacre in the Punjab and there's huge censorship. There are no reports coming out. The first reports that come out are published anonymously by Horniman in his newspaper, Bombay Chronicle, which really enrages the British. Because he's and he's not he's getting stories out. He's getting first hand accounts out. He's also, you know, collecting documentation, which will be pivotal in a, in a case, a commission that, that will happen after that. He's also interesting. I mean, just just before we skip over the, the war years, because despite his feelings about the British Raj, he's also very, very sure that this is a fight that India has to become involved in, because if the Germans win, it's going to be worse for Indians than it is already. He recognizes how horrible the Pr Prussians are, as he calls them. And he, like Ali Besson, wants home rule. He doesn't want full freedom, but he wants independence for British, for India, while retaining the British connection. Yeah. So after Jani Manabag, after he is publishing these incendiary columns and, and inches of writing, the British decide, right, they're going to have to do something about him. What do they decide to do to B.G. Horneman? They go to his bungalow. The police catch hold of him, give him 20 minutes to collect whatever he has, take him down uh, to Bombay's... Uh, port, take him down to seaside, put him on a ship and send him to England. He's just deported. I mean, it's just unceremoniously dumped um, yeah. to go back to a country he no longer feels is his home. Absolutely. And he suffers. I mean, you know, he, he really, it, this is painful for him. He terribly suffers. He's there. He's there for seven years. He's trying very hard to get back. He's uh, writing deputations, petitions. He's getting people like Bernard Shaw, A.G. Wells, George Lansbury, leader of the Labour Party, to plead on his behalf, and he's totally unsuccessful. And they actually take away his passport? They take away his passport. Then he says, I want to go on a holiday to France. And they give him a passport for France. And he goes to France and he takes a ship and lands up in Madras, you know, a few weeks later. The British can't stop him. So, so, so Netaji in reverse. Netaji in reverse, exactly. <laughs> Netaji in reverse. So he just lands up there. And by this time, the Defense of India rules have lapsed. And then he takes a train across the subcontinent from Madras to Bombay. And which is, is received as a great hero at Victoria Terminus Station, now called Chhatrapati Shivaji Terminus, and uh, resumes his job at the Bombay Chronicle, but then, of course, falls out with the management and so on. But the point about that return, he clearly loved India. And he was so upset at being away from India, seven years being away from the home country he loved, identified with. But he, the question we don't know is whether he also loved a particular Indian. And that's what animated his 
extraordinary uh, and daring return, illegal return by ship to India. You know? and, and what's your what, what's your suspicion on that? Do you, that I mean, you I, think there well, was? The question is, is it uh, one Indian? Is it more than one Indian? I can't say. <laughs> but, but certainly there, there was a love interest apart from a political identification with India and with the freedom struggle. There was something else. Okay, so can, can we, I mean, can we maybe hope that there was a happily ever after for B.G. Horniman, who suffered a great deal for his Indian allegiances? In a sense, yes, because he stayed on. He became a much admired and respected figure. Uh, he carried on editing newspapers, exposing the misdeeds of the Raj. He wasn't deported again, but he was often in court defending himself against charges of obscenity, sedition, and so on. And his lawyer, whom I quote in the book, says he was much better than any lawyer in, you know, in understanding the law and exploiting loopholes in the law. And he dies in India, and there's a circle named after him, one of the most beautiful parks in Gothic Bombay, South Bombay, opposite the Asiatic Society, is called the Horniman Circle. So he's remembered. It's about the only one that isn't a Parsi name, isn't it? The, all of the rest yeah. of them are Parsi. <laughs> that, that's it, that's it. So he's remembered and memorialized. So that's it. It is a happy ending. Well, I'm thank goodness for that. So finally, we have Samuel Stokes. Again, a, a different, very different figure from the others. Yes. For one thing, he's American. Quaker background? Quaker background. From Philadelphia. Uh, comes as a missionary, uh, then leaves the church. He comes to Himachal Pradesh, near the Simla Hills. Near, uh, he sets up home not far from the imperial summer capital and um, marries a local girl, which is not something... I mean, Honeyman probably had an Indian male lover and Annie Besant was too old to have any lovers when by the time she came. And Mira Ben was a Gandhian ascetic, so she was not allowed to have lovers. But uh, Samuel Stokes marries a local hill girl and raises a happy family with her. Then joins Gandhi's freedom struggle. And the family are not, the family are not allowed to learn English. They, they're entirely brought up Pahari and Hindi. That's right. They learn English much later. They learn English much later. And then he joins the freedom struggle. He campaigns against the forced labor that colonial officials extract in the hills. You know, when they go on a shikar hunting trip, you know, villagers are supposed to carry their loads and give them free milk and, and so on. And he... Uh, launches a campaign to have that obnoxious system abolished. Then he joins the non-cooperation movement, spends six months in Lahore jail, which is beastly hot for a man from Philadelphia living near Shimla. And he talks about what it means uh, to be in Lahore in May and June in jail. Uh, then he gets uh, comes out of jail, and then he does something very interesting and very American. He becomes an entrepreneur and plants apples. Brilliant. And lays the seeds of what is now a multi-billion dollar apple industry in the Indian Himalaya. So he's Johnny Appleseed. And yet is a man, is a man also Johnny who opposes Appleseed. Nehru's yes, yes. vision of, of an industrialised India. Yes, 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 absolutely. And uh, then he also turns spiritual, uh, starts reading Hindu texts and converts. He says, to become truly Indian, I must not just leave the church. I must embrace the faith of my people in the hills, my wife's ancestors, and adopt a name Satyanand, which is happy in the pursuit of truth is uh, so again again uh, quite remarkable life is he is he actually a hindu Does he, in what sense yeah. is he a hindu so he calls himself a hindu and the thing about being a hindu at least in the old days before the current regime took over power in india you, you didn't have to be a member of a church you know you could be a church of one and the, and the beautiful thing i mean you know with others who've um, gone native <laughs> if if you like their families repudiate him but he has a beautiful relationship with his mother and she accepts the family she accepts his Absolutely, choices yeah. and she grows to love them and it, it's such a happily ever after story for jawaharlal appleseed i might just think we should rename that johnny appleseed yeah. but it but it's a lovely an unusual acceptance. Yeah, and I think it's it's also, uh, you know, it's very lucky for the biographer 
Alita, because all these letters to his mother are there, you know. Here is a man devoted to his mother, writing twice a week to her from Shimla to Philadelphia. I mean, so if you think of how a letter would have got from the Shimla Hills to Philadelphia, first by hand, then on a horse, then on a train down from Shimla to Delhi, then on another train to Mumbai, then on a ship to New York. I mean, it's extraordinary. Each of those letters reached and they are there for the historian to, 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 to look at. And it's gorgeous. You know. Gorgeous. Yeah. What, what happened to his mixed race children? Do we know what, what's the happily ever after there or is there one? They have many children mm. who stay on, make good marriages. One of his daughters marries the first chief minister of the state of Himachal Pradesh. A granddaughter-in-law is a, a local legislator of the Congress Party. A great-grandson I know is a fantastic photographer of Buddhist sites in the Himalaya. He still lives there and photographs. Another great-grandchild runs a school, whom I don't know personally, but I know of him. With his wife, he runs a school for Hill children. So, I mean, it's they, the Stokes are uh, building India and uh, renovating India and rebuilding India as we speak. I, I was obviously very interested in the, in the book because, in a sense, it, it's a sort of um, a second wing of a diptych of, of some of the work I did 20 years ago on, on the white yeah. Mughals, who were the figures right, at right. the beginning of colonialism, who likewise intermarry, likewise right, often right. reject their own culture and, and right. take lovers and, and, and wives or, or husbands, right, right. in some cases, uh, from the other culture. And yet your, your guys suffer more than mine. My, my guys uh, have quite a nice life at the yeah, early period, yeah, but yeah. they're often, they're often yeah. in large palaces with, with, yeah. with the full luxuries of life. But your, right. people, your people have a, rough, yeah. have a rougher yeah. run Absolute, by absolutely, the 1940s. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Well, um, look, it is an absolute delight and highly recommended by both of us. Absolutely. Um, the book is yeah. called Rebels Against the Raj, Western Fighters for India's Freedom. Uh, once again, thank you very much for being a friend of this podcast. Ramachandra Gura, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ram. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, both of you. It's, it's, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. So join us next week for the start of our new series on slavery. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Anand. And goodbye from me. William Durimple.